Hello, everyone. This is Sal from Bitcoin Taxes. Welcome to our podcast. Each week, we speak to an expert with knowledge related to cryptocurrency, taxation, and blockchain technology. Our guests all have a unique perspective or expertise on these topics. Today, we are speaking with Mark Boyron, a partner in the fintech and blockchain practice of Fisher Broyles. Mark is a lawyer with a wealth of knowledge about ICOs, and we'll be discussing how different regulatory agencies view ICOs, the difference between ICOs and STOs, as well as discussing the tax implications of both. Mark, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me, Sal. Of course, no problem. So can you give me a little bit of background about yourself and how you got involved in cryptocurrency and ICOs? Sure. So I got interested in Bitcoin in 2015, more at a technical level than anything else. Uh, and after going down the rabbit hole, like many, uh, you know, it's all I wanted to, to talk about and think about. <laughs> so beginning of 2017, when there was actually legal work to be done, I thought, you know what, I'll jump uh, right into it. And since the second quarter of 2017, uh, my entire practice has been in the kind of blockchain and, and crypto space. Do you work with individuals or businesses? Yeah, so it, it varies quite a bit. Um, you know, there's there's the work on on kind of ICOs and STOs. Most of that's going to be on the you know the issuer kind of the company side. Okay. Some of that's going to be on the investor side. Um, then there's work on on funds. Most of those being you know crypto funds rather than than tokenized funds. And then there'll be work that I'll do on just generally using, you know, cryptocurrencies in uh, an ecosystem outside of the context of an ICO. Uh, I'll do some work on, on exchanges. Uh, and then lastly, work on uh, kind of mining farms, uh, whether that's, that's contract work or, um, you know, working with partners on, on leases and real estate related stuff. Um, so really kind of broadly across the spectrum, you know, I'll work uh, either alone or, or with my partners on, on, on these matters. Well, wow, that's great. And it'll be uh, great to have a perspective from somebody who has worked on the side of the issuer as well as the side of the investor. Yeah, uh, it'll be exciting. I always love having these conversations. So can you provide uh, just a quick kind of basic definition of what an ICO is and um, also what an STO is? Sure. Um, it's definitely complicated by the fact that uh, there's so many different categories we could put these in. But you know, generally speaking, I think of an ICO uh, as anything where a cryptocurrency or utility token that is not a security is being sold. Um, and so that's different from an STO where you could think of it as anything that is a security that is being sold. So that might be a, a utility token that happens to be a security anyway, or that can be something that is, you know, intentionally a security in terms of equity. And then in between the two where it's very convoluted is where you've got instruments like a SAFT that converts into a token that is intended to not be a security. I usually kind of throw those in the ICO categories where it's usually kind of a private ICO. But uh, in the end, you have a token that is not a security. And so I kind of throw it in that category. Okay, interesting. So you said a private ICO. So can you touch a little bit on what a private ICO is and how that's different than uh, a typical ICO? Sure. So, I, I mean, a lot, I often use that term broadly, ICO, to talk about any time tokens or a right to receive tokens mm -hmm. uh, is, is sold. But, but often people think of an ICO as a public sale 
to you know, a broad number of people. I think of an ICO also to include a, a private sale where a company is going to you know, a few investors or a large number of, of private investors, usually funds, high net worth individuals, and selling oftentimes and almost exclusively now SAFTs, so simple agreements for future tokens, where the investors are going to need to be um, uh, accredited investors generally, uh, depending on what securities law exemption is relied on. And that those securities are then going to uh, convert into tokens that generally the intention being that they're not going to be uh, securities. Interesting. Can you talk about ICO taxation a little bit? And if ICOs are taxed or any information you have about ICO taxation? Sure. I think generally speaking, um, you know, an ICO is going to be taxed. Think of it like you're selling a product. Um, And so the IRS has said that um, utility tokens and well, specifically, actually, the IRS has said that Bitcoin and other virtual currencies are property. And so, you know, the general view has been that utility tokens will be treated in the same way. And so you're selling property, which means that it is like selling a widget. So a company will sell a widget and get taxed on um, the, the value of that widget, the fair market value or the price at which that token specifically is sold. Um, and so, you know, most of the time there's, there's very little cost that went into developing, um, that token. And so you've got, you know, essentially zero basis being your cost into it. Uh, you've got a fair market value being the price at which you sold it. And so your tax is going to be the difference between the two. Um, you know, one, you know, intricacy will be the exact situation we were talking about when it comes to when you're doing an ICO, but using a SAFT. Uh, and then you've got the question of, okay, so you've sold a contract, a right to receive tokens. So how is that going to be taxed? Uh, and the general view there is that um, that agreement is going to be taxed as a forward contract. So essentially meaning that you're not going to be, a company's not going to be taxed in the tax year in which they sold the SAFT, but rather in the year in which they actually deliver the tokens. There is a little bit of ambiguity as to how far out that forward contract can go um, and, and when it needs to be taxed. But generally speaking, in the ICOs that we've seen, you know, you have a, a SAFT with a utility token that's getting uh, uh, delivered shortly thereafter, which we can talk about whether that's the right approach or not, uh, and in which case the tax is going to happen upon delivery of that utility token. Okay. So now you're speaking from the perspective of a ICO issuer. From the perspective of an ICO investor, I know in terms of taxation, what you said about um, the cost basis being zero and selling it for fair market value and your tax on capital gain, I know it's very similar to an investor. However, I've done different interviews where there are different opinions on how you should calculate the capital gain of an ICO from an investor standpoint. Maybe the difference between assigning it a zero cost basis versus assigning it the fair market value cost basis if there is a fair market value at the time. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and I think that gets into a, a little bit, you know, is, is there a fair market value at the time? I think the answer is, you know, let's distinguish it from like an airdrop, where if there's a fair market value and you have a basis in that at that time is another question. But if we talk about a token that's actually been purchased, you know what your cost is at that time. You've purchased it for $1, your basis is going to be $1, um, at, at least at the time of that purchase. Uh, and then when you go ahead and sell it um, for $2, then you have a, a $1 gain. 
do airdrops solve any regulatory issues for cryptocurrencies? Are they, what's your opinion on airdrops? Yeah, that's a, a complex question. And, and for any listeners who, who aren't kind of aware of the regulatory framework, maybe if you don't mind, I'll give like a, a two minute background on, yes, on please. this. So, so what most people know is that, you know, a security is a defined term in the Securities Act. And one of those terms that is included in the definition of security is an investment contract. The investment contract, again, as many know, um, is what it is, is going to depend on whether it meets certain factors in what's referred to as the Howey test. Um, and those factors are whether there's been an investment of money in a common enterprise with an expectation of profit based predominantly on the efforts of others. And when you look at that on, in the context of a, a traditional ICO, I think it's pretty clear there's an investment of money. Something's being given to the company in exchange for those tokens. It's in a common enterprise. So you could think of it as you know, everyone who's contributing to that ICO is in the same pool uh, and their risk in terms of, of a profit or loss are going to be pulled together and, and risk together. Um, then there's going to be an expectation of profit. That's, that's how almost all ICOs are sold. And it's going to be from the efforts of the issuer who's actually selling them. But now when you take an airdrop, the question becomes, is there an investment of money? The, the one that we usually take for granted in an ICO might not exist in an airdrop. And there's actually a lot of attorneys who have written about this. And what you'll see is references to free stock cases. So in, in the late 90s, um, there was a lot of companies that went out and, uh, and a lot being relatively speaking, um, <laughs> companies that went out and said, hey, um, you know, all these people, um, maybe it's users, whoever it is, we're going to go or whitelisted people. We're going to come to our website, be whitelisted, and we are going to give you stock for free. And the thought there um, uh, that they were, the position that they were taking is that there's not an offer or sale of a security. And the reason is because under the Securities Act, not only do you have to have a security, but you have to have an offer for sale of a security. And so the idea was, if we give it to you for free, how could there be an offer or sale? And the answer is, there's a bunch of court cases and SEC guidance on this, where essentially both of them say, you know, the company received something of value. It might have been a marketing benefit. Uh, it might have been liquidity, more liquidity in their stock, uh, name recognition, things of that nature, all of which were a benefit to the company. And as a result, giving stock away for free is considered an offer and sale of the stock. The question then was, you know, but is it of a security? And in that context, it's clear that it is of a security because stock by default um, is always a security in the definition of the security in the Securities Act. But when you move to an airdrop, you have to do the same analysis. First, you say, is there an offer or sale, uh, uh, offer and sale of the security? And you do the exact same analysis. And let's just assume that it's a true, true, true airdrop, being that the company does all it does. It says, hey, everyone who holds BTC, you are now going to receive you know, XYZ token. Um, we're not going to whitelist you. We're not going to anything. You're just going to receive it. Um, the question then is, is there some kind of benefit to the company? And the answer is, sure, there's less than in the free stock cases, but there's probably still some benefit. Liquidity being the obvious one again, uh, bringing developers to the platform, getting some name recognition, all of those things. So you probably still have an offer sale. But unlike the stock context, you don't by default have a security because um, it's not stock. You have to analyze, is there an investment contract? And so assuming 
that the uh, common enterprise, reasonable expectation of profit, and the efforts of other prongs are all satisfied. Question is, is there an investment of money? What most um, write-ups about this have done is assumed that what constitutes um, sufficient consideration for a sale and an offer of the security is also the same that you need for an investment of money. But when you actually look at cases uh, dealing with what is constitutes an investment of money, you actually need the recipient of the, the, the investor, quote unquote, <laughs> to actually give up something of value, which is not the same as when there's an offer of sale where it's just the company receives something of value. And if you look at a true airdrop, not one where there's any whitelisting, you're giving your name and email address, in which case you are giving something up, but one in which you just happen to get a new token in your wallet, the answer is that the company really doesn't actually, uh, the, the investor doesn't give anything up whatsoever. Um, and so there's a, there's a really good argument that there hasn't been any investment of money. Now, the problem with that is, A, the SEC is very highly likely going to disagree with you. Um, because it's not going to like it. Um, and, and second of all, there's no affirmative support for that. There's nothing against it. And actually, whatever's out there supports it. But there's nothing actually affirmatively saying that's okay. And so the general view is that you know an airdrop can be done in that way, but there's still some risk associated to it with it. But it's probably, uh, along with maybe like a fair launch, is probably the best way to go about a project. I mean, it sounds like from what you're saying that there are a lot of variables that are hard to measure, I guess, objectively. For example, um, marketing you mentioned. So if it uh, provides marketing for a business, that's hard to kind of measure. I could you know, put out a mailing list, say, join my mailing list. It might not get any hits on a website, but if somebody still puts their email on there, I guess that's me as a company gaining something from that, You know, therefore meeting that requirement. But it does sound like it's some some murky waters there for sure. There's no doubt about it. So you mentioned a fair launch project. Um, I, I haven't seen too much about fair launch projects. There, there's not a ton that I've seen personally. Um, I know I've heard of uh, Grin, I believe was one of the fair launch projects. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Grin's kind of the, the, the epitome of it, I think in, you know, nowadays, right? Bitcoin, you know, probably would be considered to be one that back then, but Grin really is. You know, there's other ones like Beam that some would put in that category, but but there were some. Uh, I believe there were some pre-minted tokens there. Uh, you know, Grin. You know, I put in the category of the fair launch project because essentially the network was launched. Nobody had any allocation of tokens. Nobody had any benefit that others didn't. And frankly, there were you know, miners, uh, investors out there who were put, putting together, you know, uh, investments to buy massive amounts of GPUs so that they could go ahead and mine uh, Grin. And everybody had an equal shot at it. And there's no central party that is going to, you know, uh, go ahead and, and manage Grin itself. Uh, and so for that reason, um, you know, it's a, it's a really good, there's a really good argument that that whole you know uh, efforts of others prong of the Howey test is not satisfied because there is no central party um, that is providing the the entrepreneurial or managerial efforts, and so the argument would be that a fair launch project like Grin um, and maybe even Beam uh, are not uh, the tokens that are then you know received by by miners in the network um, that though, that there's really no security there, um, and I think that's a pretty good argument. 
Does that have any tax implications for, um, it's hard to say investors, since that's the whole point of, I guess, the Fair Launch Project is to kind of avoid that type of investment. But does that play any role on taxation for somebody who obtains the coin, like the miners? The miners are going to be taxed. And the taxation on on mining is uh, (laughs) definitely a difficult one. Um, You know, where you have like Grin, when, when the network first launched, there really was no exchange on which Grin was launched. So, you know, determining what your basis is in that, in that asset is very difficult. Uh, whereas once you have an exchange that launched, uh, it becomes easier. Um, and so um, it's a pretty tricky area that the IRS hasn't given any guidance on. So let's talk about the SEC a little bit, and let's talk about the SEC's view on ICOs. Generally, it seems like the SEC's view is not very positive of ICOs, and given some of the statistics and the amount of money that ICOs have raised in the past, it's not surprising why the SEC doesn't have a very positive opinion of ICOs, but do you think the SEC is changing at all? Is it, is it getting more positive toward ICOs, negative toward ICOs? What's your take on it? Yeah. So going back a little bit to, you know, when, when everyone was talking about what Jay Clayton, uh, the chairman of the SEC was saying, you know, in, in, in 2017, you know, mid 2017, you know, the, the ideas of I've never seen an ICO without all the hallmarks of a, of a security, things of like that, you know, he, a lot of times he couched what he said uh, within the idea of you know all these tokens uh, being raised for projects with tokens being listed on exchanges and everybody expecting to make money off of it and there, there was a lot of well I'd say a lot of room relatively speaking in what he was saying in that he always left open the possibility that tokens are not securities as long as they're sold in a certain way um, and represent the right thing and if you fast forward, uh, to mid-2018, you then have Director Hinman being the director of, of Corp Finn at the SEC, who gives this speech that, that I think many people know, where essentially he says in the speech, as should back up, everybody knew that kind of Bitcoin was not considered to be a security at the time. There's a lot of questions whether, you know, Ether is considered to be a security or not. Right. Director uh, Hinman said is, let's leave aside whether... Ether was a security or not when it was sold, which many people interpreted probably rightfully as, okay, he probably thought it was a security at the time it was sold. He says, you know, now it's probably not a security. And there was a lot of, of rationale that went into that and a lot of points to consider when you're doing an ICO, both negative and positive, to determine whether you're a security. But the key words that came out of there was, you know, was the project, at uh, what point is the project considered to be sufficiently decentralized? And this was something that, in my opinion, I, I don't think he was thinking of it in this way, but Jay Clayton was always leaving open this possibility that, that there'd be a, a reason for a token to not be considered a security. Now, the interesting part about what Director Hinman said is he essentially said it can morph, right? You had Ether that may have been a security, but now it morphed into something that's not a security. And then you fast forward another year and you've had some statements uh, from the SEC kind of supporting that. But there was concern that Director Hidden was speaking for himself and not behalf of, on behalf of the SEC, which right. is, you know, frankly, it's, it's kind of a, it's an interesting distinction, right? Anyone who's worked in the real world would know that you don't go make some massively important statement publicly um, without checking with your boss, <laughs> right. right? And Jake claims his boss. 
So he would not go out and say something that would create such massive hope for, for issuers and so much discussion without having checked on it. But either way, importantly, uh, about uh, two days ago, um, Jay Clayton essentially came out and said, you know, the explanation that Hinman gave in his speech uh, is essentially right. And that you can have a, a token that can morph from something that is a security to something that is not a security when there are no more technical or managerial efforts of third parties being put into it. So what it essentially is we've kind of come full circle to a point where now the SEC is saying, yes, we can have something that is not a security. The question then now is twofold. One, when does that happen? That is extremely unclear. And, and under the sufficiently decentralized test, you know, when are you sufficiently decentralized? I mean, I get this question all the time. And, and it's frankly impossible to know when, when you're considered to be sufficient, sufficiently decentralized. And frankly, what does the term decentralized really even mean? You know, a lot of people say, oh, we're, we're decentralized, which is true at a technical level, but, but not at a, from a managerial perspective, you're not. You've got a central you know, system that's, that's marketing all this. Right. Um, but then, so, so that's, that's kind of an, an, I think, interesting development uh, in terms of how you're actually going to try to analyze these. Um, but you know, essentially what, what hasn't been answered at all is how do you get to a point where you are sufficiently decentralized but comply with securities laws, right? And you know, one one approach is the fair launch approach, which should work. Um, another one that's been used and, and positively, and, and you know, there's positive and negative treatment of this is SAFTs. Is is the idea that you go out and you sell a SAFT as a security, you then launch your network. And at some period in the future, when that network is sufficiently decentralized, you go ahead and deliver those tokens, which are now not considered to be securities, uh, potentially, uh, according to, to Director Hinman and, and Commissioner Clayton uh, and Chairman Clayton. So it's very convoluted as to when all that happens and how we achieve all that. But I think there are frameworks that can be worked within to actually make it happen. But as I, as I often tell anyone who wants to sell a, a cryptocurrency or deliver a new cryptocurrency. There's no way to do it without risk. Right. And it, it raises some interesting questions, though, if, if a coin is morphing from either a security to a non-security or, or vice versa, because there are differences between an SEO and an ICO. Uh, for example, an SEO, investors need to be identified, correct? Yeah. And, and, and they don't need to be it's not by default that they need to be identified. Nothing in the securities laws says you need to identify these investors, but to comply with securities laws, you're going to need to identify them so that you can figure out things like, are they accredited? Are they not? Um, and then there's going to be things like, you know, OFAC where you're going to want to say, Hey, you know, we're not allowed to deal with people um, from Iran. So those requirements might require you to actually check who they are to make sure that you're not doing business with somebody in Iran. Um, so that, that part's the, the tricky part. One of the things that you brought up, though, that is fascinating that hasn't been talked about is this idea of morphing back and forth. So I, under the framework that the SEC is going to propose here, you wouldn't really have that happen. Um, in that once you're sufficiently decentralized, you should probably remain sufficiently decentralized. There's no reason why that wouldn't happen. 
That being said, now imagine a hard fork and now you have one of the forks where you have all these people focused on growing uh, that network. Right. Suddenly, the tokens in that network may be considered to be securities. But leaving that aside, if you go back to the uh, Howey test, we've been talking about the idea of having a network that is sufficiently decentralized. So the last prong of the Howey test is no longer met, as in there's no more entrepreneurial or managerial efforts of others. But another way, you can always knock out any prong of the Howey test. So another way that this could be done is that there is no expectation of profit. So under the concept that you can have a token that morphs from a security to a non-security and vice versa, think of it as, think of a token that is sold to somebody um, and that person holds it. And a majority of people buy it with the idea being, we want to use this in the network. Then that person goes to the network, uses it, and the person receiving it is receiving it because he sold pizza. He doesn't want to invest in this token. He sold pizza on the network and he just wants to receive this token that he can then go cash out for cash. Hmm. In that transaction, you'd probably say that thing's not a security. I mean, nobody had an expectation of profit there. But now that person goes to an exchange, the, the, the seller of the pizza goes to an exchange and sells it on that exchange. You still have managerial efforts. You still have all the other prongs of the Howey test. And now suddenly on the other side of that exchange is a person who wants to buy it so that they could speculate on the value of that token. That person has a reasonable expectation of profit uh, based still on the efforts of that issuer. So you now have a transaction that's going to be a securities transaction. And then you could keep going back and forth. And essentially, you could, in seconds, have a token that continues to morph from a security to a non-security to a security to a non-security. Uh, and that's going to be a handful for the SEC. And I'd love to see, I mean, it's going to be great seeing how that gets figured out. I mean, I, it's probably an obvious answer, but are all these complications what is causing such a a delay in any real regulatory notices from the IRS and the SEC on cryptocurrency because it's so complex and convoluted? Yeah, I think there are a couple of ways. I think the SEC was very intentional in its approach to ICOs. Essentially what it did, and frankly, it did it brilliantly, it throwed cold water on the whole space. Uh, and essentially did that by, by saying, hey, we're, gonna, we're subpoenaing people and we're going after everybody. Um, and that freaked everybody out. And I personally attribute it to a, a big reason for, for the downturn in, in, in the space, uh, especially in ICO funding, um, because a lot of the investors who were funding this got freaked out. And so they were, they were very intelligent in that part. But then you say, okay, well, why haven't they provided guidance um, in a more meaningful way? And I think the answer there really comes down to, A, let's wait and see and and kind of figure out what the best way is to approach this. But also the idea being there is no clear path that we can give anybody. And I don't ever expect a clear path on ICOs. And the reason is because, and, and I'm cutting some slack to the SEC here, but I think they deserve it, is if you look at a token, a token can be anything, right? You can, you can sell it in any way. You can give it any rights or no rights that you want. You can restrict it in certain ways so that it only gets used in certain ways. And so now you have an asset that you can literally turn into anything just by coding the smart contract that way uh, and by selling it a certain way. 
So how do you create a black and white definition around that? It is extremely difficult. And even if you do, what you're now going to have, given the flexibility you have with tokens, is you're going to have all these edge cases that is essentially going to create the exact same uncertainty that we're concerned about right now. And so my view is, is I actually, probably a rare person, don't think that any new regulations should be created or new laws. Because what, if we do, what we're essentially going to be doing is starting from a blank slate. Hey, we now have this new law that creates some benefit and clarity for us. Now we need to start from no case law and interpret all the contours rather than saying, okay, let's go look at a 70-year-old case um, that has tons of case law around it, a lot of it not on point, but some of it helpful, um, that we can simply build on to actually give more clarity in a much quicker way. Do you think that cracking down on ICO issuers who are scamming people do you think that's kind of enough to have the industry regulate itself? No, I mean, look, we, the, the crackdown is, I think, necessary, but I, I am in, totally in favor of guidance. But that's different, and, and the guidance being, you know, what we've seen from the SEC so far is not great because it's coming from certain individuals at the SEC. We should actually see that kind of guidance actually come from the SEC itself. Right. And what I'm saying is that we probably are not, and I don't think we should get, changes in regulations themselves from the SEC or changes in laws itself from Congress. Got it. So what do you think the future of ICOs and, and STOs are? Do you think STOs are the future? Do you think people are still going to invest in ICOs? People are still going to use ICOs? I mean, there's been so many failures in the world of ICOs and people still, as far as I understand, people still are investing in them and still take a chance. So what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, on that investment side, I think it's, you know, a successful ICO now raises $2 million. Sure. You once in a while see one that, that Binance is, is helping out with that'll raise five, $7 million, something like that. But most successful ICOs now are probably raising a million, $2 million. Um, so it's very, I mean, it's a tiny, tiny, tiny market. That being said, I expect it to continue when it comes to any kind of protocol uh, and anything that truly, absolutely needs a token. Not the dApps that could need a token um, and can use them and, and will be more efficient with them, sure. I'm talking about the ones that actually need them like a protocol, partially because you can actually sell those and launch a network uh, potentially not that is not a security. I don't think you can actually get away with that with a DAP where you're always going to have central actors, essentially. Um, and so I, I see kind of protocols continuing to grow and token sales relating to protocols continuing to grow. I see everything else shifting more towards STOs or what I'll call internal tokens. So think of it as nothing more than rewards points, something that, that people think is more efficient to have uh, uh, on the blockchain. And it could be more efficient and it could be better for various reasons, but will not be listed on exchanges. When you say reward, when you say rewards, immediately I think of things like BNB and gas, but both of those are listed on exchanges. So can you clarify a little bit on why those don't fit the definition of what you're talking about? Let me clarify what I meant. I, I meant something that's internal in the sense of not being listed on an exchange and just being used within the ecosystem, in which case you really couldn't profit from it unless somebody's creating artificial uh, enhanced value within the ecosystem. BNB to me is, is, an, is a clear security for the simple reason that I buy BNB. I can just speak for myself. 
I right. will hold BNB because tons of BNB will be burned. And that is the exact same thing as giving me a dividend of BNB. It's, it, it's interesting that some people will bifurcate the two, but it's just, it's the opposite. It's like saying, I'm going to, instead of issuing you a dividend in stock, I'm going to repurchase stock. Um, your, your supply is going to be reduced and it's going to increase the value of everything else outstanding. Um, and so to me, that's, that's just artificially increasing, maybe because it should be increased and you're using your profits to do it, which is what BNB does. Um, Finance. Finance does. They essentially use their profits to, to or at least the burning of the token is tied to their profit in some way. Um, and to me, that's just an, an obvious way of saying, um, you know, this is a security. I think it feels different because it's strictly from one exchange. I mean, you can trade it elsewhere, but BNB is inextricably linked to Binance. And that's why maybe there's some confusion of whether that's, you know, considered a security or kind of like an internal reward because you can convert all of your dust coins to BNB in a simple process. And it just feels very different than other coins, at least to me, I guess. Yes, no, and I I agree. I mean, I I always say, I don't think they're they're mutually exclusive, a security and a utility token, right? So BNB has tons of utility as well. I mean, it, it you know reduces fees on the network. Um, it is useful just being able to convert your dust into BNB, but it doesn't change the fact that, that ultimately the success of Binance and the value of the token are tied to one another. Right. And I, as a holder of BNB, expect that token to increase in value based on the fact that Binance is going to continue to run the best exchange in the world, be profitable, and go and get BNB adopted by all of these retailers around the world so that its usage is increased and the value of my token is increased. Yeah. So it is a great utility, but it's also a security in my eyes. That, that's a great way to explain it, that, and that makes perfect sense. Uh, so how about any state laws? We've talked a lot about federal laws. This is a topic that I don't see a lot of discussion about. How about state laws uh, regarding ICOs and STOs? Are there any effects there? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing is that really hasn't been covered much is that there's a lot of te- there's a lot of states, less than 50%, but, but maybe a dozen or so, that instead of using the Howey test for determining what is a security, uses something called the risk capital test. Um, you know, California is one of those states. And, and essentially, that test pretty much looks at, are you putting the capital of somebody at risk? Um, and, and, and could they essentially go, go lose that capital based on, on that investment? Um, and so I think there's, a, there's quite a few situations in which um, you might have a, a security under state law that is not a security under federal law. Um, that being said, where I think the, most, the, the biggest distinction comes up, and, and we haven't talked really about STOs in, in much depth at all, um, and, and frankly, I view them as completely different from ICOs, in, in, in fundamentally just completely different. I don't view them as stemming from ICOs. But regardless, um, at a state law level, when you actually have a security and the purpose of that security or, or one of the benefits purportedly of, of a security token is the ability to transfer it, uh, state law uh, restrictions on on transfers in the secondary market are, are a huge problem, and there currently there's pretty much no way of actually addressing 
uh, state law issues with security tokens in a way that would actually allow those security tokens to be really free flowing. It seems like it would be easier to categorize something as a security following the the state law regulations. So it could be possible that there's a coin that is considered by the state a security, but not federally by a security because the definition is a lot more loose. Yep. Uh, if it's going to lose somebody money, if or if there's you know the money is at risk that they're investing. Of course, anything you invest in there's there's risk. I agree with that. <laughs> you know, and it's funny. One of those things that you know, I always say in this space, it's it's pretty easy to know when something should be considered a security or not. You know, I, I ne- I've never heard somebody tell me they're going to go invest in this Kickstarter campaign. They're like, hey, I went to buy this on Kickstarter, and sure, they have to wait five years to receive it, but they go and buy it. They don't invest in it. And the fact that that you know, as much as I, I do believe there are, are utility tokens that can be sold not as securities, especially you know, protocols. Um, the fact that somebody will tell me, hey, I want to go invest in this token, and then they tell me, and it's not a security. I'm kind of like, you just told me you want to invest in it. If you didn't think <laughs> of it in that sense, you would have told me you want to go buy this token to use it, but you don't. You tell me you want to invest in it. And that kind of usually is a dead giveaway to me that that, that token is probably an investment. That's an interesting comparison, though, because they're both technically crowdfunding. Yep. So it's an interesting comparison. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And, and, and one of them is closer to equity crowdfunding and the other one, you know, a true, true utility token like a, that, that is not sold as a security is closer to, you know, uh, uh, just consumer crowdfunding with, with you know, Indiegogo and Kickstarter, whereas a utility token that is sold you know, to people who want to invest in it is more like equity crowdfunding. Right. So do you have anything else that you think our audience would want to hear about security tokens or anything between security tokens and ICOs that you think would be important for our audience to hear? I think the only two things that would be useful is, is one, how, how are STOs sold differently than ICOs? Like, like, why does it matter if it ends up being an STO? And then the second one being, especially for, for you here, is how are STOs taxed differently than ICOs? Okay. So uh, if you could go into those, if you could give our audience some explanation for those two questions, I think it would be super useful. Sure. So... Let's start with what the differences are with STOs. So as an STO, you know, with an STO, you're going to go out and actually sell a security. And that security could technically be a utility token. But what we're seeing is that there's not really much interest in, in a utility token being sold as a security. And frankly, there'd be a lot of issues with its use in the network. So most of them are being sold the, the way traditional securities were. So they represent equity in a company. Oftentimes, these are startups. Some of them are companies that hold you know, real estate in them uh, or maybe a single property and it's intended to represent ownership in that real estate. Same thing with art. Um, we're, we're starting to see more discussions around debt. Um, and so essentially what you'll have is a, a company that's going to go follow traditional securities laws. It's going to say, hey, do I want to do a registered offering, i.e. an IPO? No, okay, I don't want to do that because it's too expensive and time-consuming. So what are my other options? And the answer is certain exemptions, the ones that, that folks have often heard of. Reg D, uh, 506C, Reg S, um, you're going to have Reg CF, Reg A+. And so you're going to go ahead and sell those security tokens in accordance with those laws. The implications relative to ICOs are first, most of those investments are all traditional in that their value is going to be tied to an underlying asset or the performance of an underlying asset. 
maybe the future cash flows of, of a property or a company. Uh, unlike an ICO, where you know, the frankly, there's lots of different models as to how a token might be might be valued and, and you know how its value might grow. Um, so, so there's that one difference there, and then the second one is when it comes to the liquidity in an STO relative to an ICO you're going to have a lot more limitations based on the securities laws exemptions. For example, Reg D is going to require a 12-month transfer restriction. Um, and then after that, even when it's transferred, there's going to be certain limitations on certain types of people. For example, affiliates of the issuer are going to have certain limitations as to how and the manner in which they sell it and the volume in which they, they sell tokens. Um, so there's significant differences between the two in the assets being sold, how they're sold, and the implications after they're sold. And then when it comes to taxation of STOs, that also is completely different. So, so one of the things that I heard a lot when there was the transition, let's call it from, from ICOs to STOs, is this idea of, okay, well, one of the benefits of an STO is now that I'm selling a security, I won't be taxed on it. And that's really not how kind of tax works. Um, if you go ahead and sell a utility token, um, that is the utility tokens that you saw in the STO world, and you sell it under securities laws, you are still selling property. Uh, it doesn't make a difference and you're going to be taxed in that way. Where STOs start being beneficial is when you actually sell something that is not taxable. So for example, equity in your company. The fact that it's now a token representing that equity does not mean that that's suddenly going to be taxed. You're still selling stock and stock is not something that gets taxed. Where we start seeing some interesting things with STOs is kind of some of the new models that we're seeing that we haven't really traditionally seen with uh, a securities offerings. So for example, if people haven't historically sold the rights to receive revenue in the future. And right now, that's a lot of things that people talk about. I'm going to sell you a right to receive you know, X percent of my revenue forever. Um, and when you look at that, the question is, is that taxable? And that's where you start getting tricky and you really want to get tax. It starts getting tricky and you really want to get tax advice because, you know, at that time, the question is, is that revenue, does it look sufficiently like stock to not, to not be taxed in the same way that stock would not be taxed? Uh, or is that not the case in which case it will be taxed? Uh, even though you're selling a security like revenue. And so it certainly becomes really important to structure that right so that you're not taxed on things um, that you wouldn't expect to. And just to be clear, that taxation is on the issuer. Um, then you obviously have issues that you need to consider from an investor perspective uh, in terms of what it means when they're holding certain types of assets. Are there any differences you would want to talk about or you think that people should know and from the investor standpoint between SCO and ICO taxation? The biggest thing is, are you going to be able to get, uh, uh, so, so if you have equity and there's distributions uh, on, on that stock, um, then you're going to get capital gains treatment on that. Uh, if you're holding another asset that is not deemed to be you know, stock uh, and there's distributions on that, um, that may be deemed to be revenue for the investor. Uh, in which case you're not going to be treated, you're not going to be getting that same uh, beneficial taxation, uh, in which case, you know, you would obviously want to think about both what's the issuer taxation problems, and then what are the problems for the investor? Because to an investor, you know, it's going to be a less valuable investment if they have to pay a higher tax rate on, on distributions that they receive. Right. 
And crypto is becoming a lot more accessible to a lot more people, which is great. But that means that a lot more people who are not super knowledgeable about these types of things are going to be investing in ICOs and potentially STOs. How do they know the difference? How will they, is it up to the issuer to explain to them what they're investing in and saying, hey, this is an ICO, this is an STO, or should the investor know what they're I mean, ideally, an investor would know what they're investing in, but that may not always be the case with how many offerings there are. So is it up to the issuer or is it up to the investor to do their homework and to know how it's taxed and what they owe and how it's categorized? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely on the it's on the investor. I mean, the investor needs to always be diligent and, and figure that out. Uh, you know, if you've got that being said, you know, if the if if they are diligent and they can't tell the difference, um, then there's probably uh, some kind of liability there for the issuer because it should be very obvious. If you're selling a utility token that is not a security, um, then you shouldn't need to have the same level of disclosures as you would with a security token. Um, If you are not being told that this is a registered and an offering subject to some kind of exemption under securities laws, then you can assume that this is an ICO. Now, whether it's a compliant ICO or not is a different story. And that's where we need to rely on on the SEC. And and we've got private litigation for that as well. But we hope the SEC makes things clear enough and takes sufficient action against bad actors that anyone, any issuer doing an ICO knows, okay, I'm doing an ICO, not an STO. I don't need to give the same kind of disclosures or I am doing an STO, in which case here's all the disclosures that I need to provide. And that'll be very obvious to investors. I appreciate that. And that's an ideal scenario. Do you think that's currently kind of how it works and how these issues are, issuers are working? Do you think they're doing what you said? It's a complex question because of the international aspects of this. So um, if you talk about the US only, I think we actually have gotten to a point where you know, I have very, I'm, I used to not be surprised when I'd get a call from somebody and say, I want to do an ICO and have like no idea that there might be regulations involved. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, I pretty much never get that call. And if I do, I get really, really surprised <laughs> with all the information that's out there that somebody would have, you know, absolutely no idea. So I, I guess what I'm saying is from the issuer side, um, I think there is a lot more knowledge out there that this is a risk. And frankly, you just have to type it into Google um, just, just a little bit. And you're going to see, hey, there's this issue regarding whether something's a security or not. And so I, I do think that it's, it's realistic for US people to figure out, okay, I need to talk to an attorney because it's not 100% clear to me or not. Um, but where it gets more complex is the international aspect of it. So you know, I, I've talked to, to STOs outside of the US who you know, they're complying with you know, let's say, say French laws or Swiss laws. And I'll say, okay, that's, that's awesome. You know, so are you taking U.S. people? Yes, as long as they comply with the requirements under French laws. And they just completely ignore the fact that they still need to comply with U.S. laws as well. And that's where, you know, I cut some people a little more slack because, you know, maybe they don't know that. You're in, you're in France or Switzerland, you have no idea that you need to comply with U.S. laws as well. That being said, they should have counsel who told them that. Um, Even if they're French lawyers, they should know. There's probably some laws in the U.S. that apply. Let's talk to U.S. counsel. So I I don't think there's much of an excuse there, but I do cut a little more slack to to the international issuers that might just not be aware of that. 
you have anything else you think that we should uh, talk about or touch on that our audience would be interested in hearing? No, I think we've kind of broadly covered all the issues, you know, relating to ICOs and STOs in the space right now. Yeah, it's a, it's an incredibly complex uh, field and incredibly complex topic. And I'm sure we could spend a few hours and I'm sure you could spend a few hours giving us more very specific information about each of these, you know, events that's for another time. So <laughs> we Let's do it another time, get in the, the nitty gritty. Yeah. You might absolutely. have a few people who stopped listening. If you do that. <laughs> but, but after, after the four, after the four hour mark, they may stop listening, but exactly. there are definitely, there is an audience that would continue listening because this stuff is interesting and it's important to know and be informed about if you're going to be making either an investment or if you're considering starting an ICO if you're a business. So it's, it's, yeah, it's one of the more interesting things actually that's happened that's come out of ICOs. It's the, um, the level of communication between developers and lawyers is so much higher than it used to be. I'm, I'm in a lot of different uh, chat channels uh, or telegram channels um, and, and just in general have so many more conversations with developers who are interested in the law. Uh, and then I'm learning, you know, more at a technical level, certain aspects. And that's always something that I think, you know, any lawyer in this space who actually understands the technical aspects of it are going to be able to solve more solutions than those who don't. And so being able to have that interaction is something that I think is, is fun. And some developers shy away from the lawyers, some enjoy it. And I think lawyers do the same with developers. And I think those who are kind of learning from each other are, are in a pretty good spot and, and are kind of having fun with it as well. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's the same with just crypto taxation in general. Both of the the fields, crypto and, and taxation, are both two very like niche type fields. And not not a lot of people have a lot of information about crypto. Not a lot of people are pro. I mean, there's a lot of tax pros, a lot of crypto pros, but not a ton of crypto tax pros. So it's yeah. it's it's always beneficial for you to have that information that not everybody has. And that's why we do these podcasts to kind of gather everybody who does have the this specialized skill set and the specialized knowledge set and then share it with an audience who may not have the knowledge and hopefully inform a lot of people help people make informed decisions and you know educate themselves a bit that makes sense it's what i love about some of your past podcasts they're, they're very specific on issues that the issues that somebody is going to run into in this tax space that there's no way anyone else is covering. So yeah, right. And sometimes you can't even Google it. You can't Google it. Everything else you can Google. Some of these things are so um, specific and out of the ordinary and not that talked about that you Google it and nobody has an answer. The only yeah. thing you find on Google is somebody asking if anybody has an answer. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Great. Well, Hey Mark, I appreciate you being here today. It was a great discussion. And if somebody wants to reach out, um, do you have any way for somebody to reach out to you? Yeah, I mean, you can Google my name. It's unique enough that that doesn't <laughs> usually pop up. It's Mark Boiron. That's B-O-I-R-O-N. Um, or I'm on LinkedIn or at Twitter on Twitter at Boiron Attorney. Okay, great. And uh, we'll throw that up in the in the write up, and we'll have that all in there. And uh, well, thanks again, Mark. Appreciate you joining us, man. And we'll have to talk again soon. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks, Al. No problem. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to stay tuned for more great podcasts from Bitcoin Taxes. If you'd like to request a topic or you'd like to be a part of our podcast, please feel free to reach out. Our email is podcast at bitcoin.tax.